0: I wanted to start off by asking you because you sent me a text about this and I also watched the movie on the date that it says at the start of the movie but how close to the time was it and you want to tell me about that?
1: This is the spookiest thing that Alfred Hitchcock of all the things that he did to me uh you know throughout (laughs) my adolescence and and into adulthood Welcome, friends, to episode 294 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And I'm writer Luke Elliott. And this week, we discuss Alfred Hitchcock's 1960 film Psycho. Here we are, the master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock. I don't know that his influence can be overstated. Mm. um, So this is going to be a massive project in terms of covering him and covering this film Psycho, which, by all metrics, has pretty much the most iconic scenes ever put to screen so it's a massive project i can't believe we're you know what are we almost seven years into this podcast and we're just now getting (laughs) to alfred hitchcock someone we will return to and uh someone i'm super excited to talk about
0: me too man i feel like it's it's kind of been a subtext thing of this podcast that i my my experience especially with a lot of classic cinema is just super small um and i was thinking about it and i'm like i don't know if i've ever watched an entire hitchcock film it's something you just see, but like, I don't, I hadn't seen this whole movie. I saw the nineties, uh, version, which at some point we might tackle as a, as a yeah. like a bonus or something, but, um, I had never seen this original. Uh, I'd seen many clips of it. So many of the scenes were super memorable. And cause I was like, "Yeah, I have seen that a million times, but other ones completely new to me. Um, but I I've been, I've loved getting to learn about a lot of classic cinema and, and you know, these, these iconic films and iconic directors so it's really cool uh, to get to do that for this podcast, and I'm excited to learn learn more about Hitchcock.
1: Yeah, and last week we talked about Block uh, and how that, at least to me, that that novel felt fairly modern in its conventions and the things that it mm. was doing for 1959. This is plain as day for the Hitchcock film. When you watch this, you can see um, what would become what you know. I think he's picking up from people like Orson Welles and some people that were developing some of this, but he's this amalgamation director like he took the soviets he took like italian film he took french new wave he took all of these different things that were going on all at the same time and he synthesized it into um his own hitchcockian uh style and and the things that he does with it i mean just the way that he moves the camera the way that he blocks his scenes the way that you know it, as many great directors that we talk about do the the meticulous attention to detail that's on display um, and then this this film has such a fun story with where it falls within Hitchcock's career um, because it's black and white by choice. And it's it's a smaller budget because he wanted to break conventions and do some some new stuff
0: here. Awesome, man. I, that's like uh, some of the stuff I know about Hitchcock is his mastery of suspense, like, uh, you know, ways that you can stage the same scene to make it more suspenseful. Um, I thought in this movie uh, use of music was was fantastic. It helps that you have one of the most iconic scores, I think, of all time. Um, That just every time it comes on, I'm like, man, this is a good piece of music for a movie. Um, There was just so much to to rave about in this film. Um, Before we get super into that, I wanted to just touch back on on one thing from last week. I listened back to our episode and I didn't realize it at the time. But you kept mentioning uh, Mindhunter and how Ed Gein was like prominently featured and all this stuff. And I was like. I didn't realize it at the time, but I think you were confusing him with Ed Kemper, oh, who yeah. is the main guy that they go talk to in Mindhunter a lot. So I just wanted to clear it up that that's not Ed Gein, in case any of our listeners were confused. Ed Gein predates Ed Kemper by like a decade or two. Um, and I don't I think he's referenced probably in Mindhunter, but he's not like one of the main people they talk to. Um, so I just wanted to clear that up. Ed Kemper was like a co-ed killer and definitely did crazy shit. And like is, is well worth being considered one of the evilest people to ever, you know. Uh, commit crimes in the United States, but uh, Ed Gein is is a different kind of a different animal. And I actually watched like a forty five minute documentary about him um, just because I was wanted to refamiliarize myself with um, what he had actually done and um, correct one other thing I said that that actually got wrong last week. And uh, he actually was declared to uh, unfit to stand trial. He never stood trial. He went directly to a mental institution. I wonder um, if that however. Was just- Part of the time period that, yeah. that's kind of what they were doing with these people at that time yeah I, I gotta catch myself again he didn't never stand trial because later on like years later after he had been in the institution for a long time he did actually stand trial um but i don't I, I don't think it like changed anything he was going to be in the institution for the rest of his life um and that's and that's what happened to him but he was so psychotic and like hearing voices and just so unfit that um he it was like there's no point and even giving this guy a trial. I don't know. I don't know if that would still play out that way or not. I'm not like an expert enough on the justice system, but um, at least at the time they just said, no, this this isn't even somebody we're going to put on trial.
1: Yeah, Kemper is definitely the one that I was confusing with, too. You're correct. There. I thought so. so. Okay. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: I was like 100% sure that that character they kept meeting with was was yeah. Ed Gein. But yeah, yeah. same person. So just name, to be clear, not name. the
0: same guy. Right. Uh, Ed Kemper was uh, definitely had trouble with, I think, with his grandmother or somebody. He had like a mother figure that he had his his stuff with, but uh, different kind of si- uh, situation than, than Ed Gein.
1: Well, moving into this film here, uh, Psycho, like I said, it was kind of a departure for him. North by Northwest was his most recent recent film, um, and he wanted to move away from the big stars of the time, the big studio telling him, you know, what to do. Big. It just was. It's a lot to to kind of grapple with when you're making this a film like that at the time within that system. He filmed this entirely on a small budget in black and white with his television series crew from Alfred Hitchcock Presents. So he'd been getting very comfortable oh, okay. in that format. Um, and he's like, I think he realized shooting these shorter form, um, smaller budget pieces. He's like, I could do this
0: same thing with a feature film. It totally so makes did. sense that Block would go on to write several episodes. I mean, these two guys, uh, yeah, they definitely are, are connected and, and um, probably more, you know, Hitchcock making Block famous, but also like Block wrote the original novel that is really similar to the movie that we watch, right? So right. I feel like a ton of credit has to be given to him. Um, I wanted to ask you before we like get too far down the road, like, what's your experience with Hitchcock? I know you you did a lot of film studies, so Mike, yeah. is this somebody you studied a lot in school? And and outside of that, had you seen Psycho before?
1: I'd seen Psycho before for sure. Uh, Psycho was definitely something that I think I I know Vertigo for sure. We studied in in film school, and and Psycho was in there. Um, I and then I think I have watched a lot of a lot more of Hitchcock on my own, just knowing the reputation and knowing the influence, like Rear Window and um, uh so You have one called The Birds. The Birds is huge, yeah. <laughs> I haven't um, seen it. I've just heard about it. <laughs> yeah, North by Northwest is you know a good a good example of like a Cary Grant giant, massive, biggest movie of the year kind of thing for Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's just evident when you start looking at. At classic film and you start and you go to before Hitchcock and you look at some of the films, films of the times and some of the the styles and the techniques that are employed and then you watch Hitchcock. It just feels like he's so revolutionary for that time period. Yeah, Um, it has such a like kinetic eye. And uh, they talk a lot about like voyeurism with with Hitchcock as he wanted you to feel like you're you're seeing into the something you're not necessarily supposed to. Um, Mm, And mm -hmm. and I noticed that with a
0: lot of the early scenes, there was a lot of like intimate moments and the camera uh, that like kind of represents that
1: as well. Like the way it moves through a scene is supposed to represent like someone's eye and that kind of thing, like where you would naturally look. So, yeah, he's one of those directors that you can't go through a film school program without without studying. Um, Mm -hmm. And I feel I, I do remember even before then um my family bought like a set of like the you know greatest hitchcock films on like vhs or dvd or something and i watched the heck out of those too so it's funny for a while i just knew hitchcock films without even knowing some of the titles because they they would all just run one after the other um so yeah i was very uh, aware of hitchcock and, and familiar with him and he's one of those that I think as you start to develop a, a vocabulary in in film, like a visual language, you you study his stuff for sure. You just and honestly, yeah. all of his stuff holds up and it's very watchable just to to I, I would say for modern sensibilities.
0: I was. Yeah, I was surprised at how watchable this film was because, again, I, 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 I kind of on record as saying I tend to have a a, a preconception that I'm going to find some of these older films a little on the dull side. Um, And I have been time and again proven wrong on that. Now, sometimes it holds up, I will say, but um, it's just because like, you know, a lot of my modern sensibilities, um, I have to kind of dial back expectations and, and, and there's a little bit of that that goes on here. And I wanted to ask you about that, too, because he's so renowned and he's so influential that we've seen so many other people take the things he's doing and like take it to another level and like build off of it. And I could tell like, oh, my God, this is this is what led to this other thing. And like, he's so good at this. But like, I can tell that this is an early version of stuff I've seen elsewhere. And going back and watching it, I'm wondering, like, does it still feel as special to you? Are you able to like see how special it is in the moment? Because I had to keep reminding myself of the historical context for why this is so special cuz this just wasn't being done at the time that kind of, Yeah. does that make sense
1: yeah i can i totally see that and for some reason there's like there's not a switch in my head that i flip it's more so like i just when i watch a film like this i can understand the limitations of the time period and just roll with it in that way and and like yeah. i think when i see a filmmaker doing something that that influences somebody like a kubrick or some somebody that that like is super well respected down the line just a little bit further down than than hitchcock you're like Oh, he's, you know, he's revolutionizing the space and, and especially when we get into some of this, um, uh, taboo subject material and like the way that, you know, just to jump to some of it, like this is the first time in American cinema that a toilet is seen flushed on screen.
0: Really? Yeah. First time. Oh, Stuff like
1: that where you're like, it is the first time someone's doing it or or, uh, the first time someone's doing it. And that's, and
0: see that scene didn't even really like register. Like I saw it and it didn't. I ne- I would have never thought that that was the first time. Right. But that's cool. That's really cool.
1: And so that's the kind of stuff where like if you put yourself in the shoes of the viewers of the time, it's impossible not to be like completely blown away. And then even for like a modern viewer, if you were to try to try to view it that way, I, I just think like so much of what we see in our modern cinema is here yeah. that it, there's like not a there's not that gap that there might be for something from like the 40s or something, you know, the 30s. Yeah,
0: totally. And this movie, I I kept thinking about how wild it is to watch this version of like a psychological horror movie where a human is the main antagonist. And then think about the explosion of these kinds of movies that we are going to get in just a couple decades. Like, think about a couple decades. A couple decades ago is like mid 2000s for us right now. And think about the changes that movies went through between the 60s and the 80s, right? Like, it's unbelievable to think about how rapidly stuff changed. And this movie kicked off a massive change in the horror genre. Cause so I was, I was uh, listening to that uh, documentary about Ed Gein, and they were talking a little bit about Psycho because it comes up. And um, how at the time, prior to this, a lot of horror movies and horror t- uh, projects were... Monster movies about like Frankenstein, Dracula, you know, aliens, like otherworldly beings that were the monsters. Yeah. This was one of the first times we saw a human being who was, you know, the evil thing at the heart of the horror film. And it blew people's minds. And all of a sudden it launched a whole uh, genre really of like the slasher film. And like less than less than what, 14 years later or something, we get you know, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like, that's how much this this like launched something, right? Absolutely, yeah.
1: I mean, if you talk about horror lineage too, like you have to look at Hitchcock, especially with, with this, because up to this point, he's doing horror. Like the horror of the time that wasn't monsters was psychological thrillers and sort of murder, like not necessarily always murder, but mysteries. And uh, th- those are the things that are like captivating audiences. And then he shifts it ever so slightly into this murder area. And then you're getting a killer, a slasher. You see the the murder weapon, and it's it's yeah. still a mystery. It's still a and mystery, but it's he. I think he struck gold, and and then yeah. uh, this just continues. on. I mean, clearly on it did. Said.
0: And uh, I, I will confirm something I, I alluded to last week too: that Ed Gein's crimes coming to light right around the time of that novel Psycho, and then this film coming out, absolutely played into its popularity. People, it, it caught a national f- craze. People were so shocked by the reports of human skin being used as lampshades and a woman's suit and like faces on a wall that had been decorated with with uh, makeup and all this stuff that Gein had done now most of his collections were gathered from the local cemetery but he's confirmed to have killed two people and it's suspected a few more perhaps even his own brother Um, so it's unknown how many like living victims he had but the just the macabre details of what they found in this guy's house I mean if if that happened today it would be one of the biggest stories of all time like and and just imagine in the 60s where like this kind of thing had never been heard of before Um, and then all of a sudden Psycho comes out and it's about a a killer with a mom who is like you know driven mad by his relationship with her and so much of it mirrors what was going on with Gene, that the the fascination was there and this thing just hit like crazy and speaking of like how hard it hit, the way that Hitchcock went about
1: promoting the film, keeping it a secret, that also was pretty novel for the time. I don't know how familiar yeah, you big are. Big twist. With, but he, not even just that. He of at the time it was kind of, la- theaters were more lax on coming and showing up whenever you want and leaving the film whenever oh, you want kind of okay. thing. As the film was released, he told all theaters he and he. There was massive billboards. There were there was like a cutout of him in every theater with a finger on the watch kind of thing, saying like. You are not allowed to enter this film after it started, um, and then also on the way out, it's like, what? please, please keep uh, the secrets to yourself. After, you, don't don't ruin the su- the suspe- the surprise for your friends. So he started this massive movement where it that like when the don't film spoil released, it. there were <laughs> don't spoil it. There yeah. were lines around the block of people wanting to see this movie. And initial critical consensus was that it was they they didn't love it all part, and some people wow. historians point to it possibly being. They didn't get any, um, you know, press screenings of it like they normally did. They had to go see it
0: with general audiences as well smelly general p- people Gen pop. Yeah.
1: They uh...
0: well and maybe a little bit of stodginess, right? Like how, were these critics from another era and they weren't ready for the new thing Right. Like oh, absolutely. It's that, it's that it. scene from yeah. uh, back to the future. Where it's like you might not be into this But your kids are gonna love it. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's exactly it and and like but what's crazy is that audiences did love it at the time and it and yeah. people were just like I mean it was the highest grossing movie of the year. It was like it was it was it did gain. And then I bet you a bunch of critics came around
0: at that point. (laughs) Very
1: by the end of the year, by the end of that year, many, you know, most lists had it in like the top ten movies of the year. And like how incredible was we will get into it, but it's nominated for many Academy Awards and and that kind of thing. So uh, let's let's dive a little deeper into this. So Peggy Robertson, Hitchcock's longtime assistant read Anthony Boucher's positive review of the novel in his Criminals at Large column in the New York Times and decided to show the book to her employer. However, studio readers at Paramount Pictures had already rejected its premise for a film. Hitchcock acquired rights to the novel for $9,500 and reportedly ordered Robertson to buy all copies to preserve the novel's surprises. Paramount, whose contract guaranteed another film by Hitchcock, Did not want hitchcock to make psycho paramount was expecting no bail for the judge starring audrey hepburn who became pregnant and had to and had to bow out leading hitchcock to scrap the production their official stance was that the book was too repulsive and impossible for films uh, and nothing but another of his star-studded mystery thrillers would suffice they did not like quote anything about it at all and denied him his usual budget in response hitchcock offered to film psycho quickly and cheaply in black and white using his uh, Alfred Hitchcock Presents television series Crew. Paramount executives rejected this cost conscious approach, claiming their sound stages were booked, but the industry was in a slump. Hitchcock countered that he personally would finance the project and film it at Universal International using his Shamley Productions crew if Paramount would distribute. In lieu of his usual $250,000 director's fee, he proposed a 60% stake in the film negative this combined
0: offer was accepted and hitchcock went ahead in spite of naysaying from executives that's an example of somebody sticking to it right like he's at he's you know in the midst of his career here he's he's not an unknown but to to stand by your guns and say no i know this thing is going to be worth it um, and
1: you don't do this at the time he the only person that could do this was him yeah, he was you have to have the, a certain amount of power the biggest filmmaker working basically at this time and uh he You know put his neck on the line put his own money on the line reputation um, and he he, you know like I said I think he saw the practicality of it from his his shorter works on Alfred Hitchcock presents Um, he also felt that this story specifically being shot in black and white was more desirable because it prevents the movie from being too gory if in color yeah and so he kind of leaned into, you know, because I
0: imagine, even with uh, by today's standards, relatively tame amount of violence and, and blood or what have you. I'm sure it was still scandalous and, and probably censors were trying to to say you can't have this. I imagine. And that was the
1: big thing of the time, right, is like the censors. There is the nudity, like Hayes like, code that had yeah. been in that had gone on for a long time that we have talked about in the past. But basically, they are yeah, the, our censorship it was still in effect. Right. At that point it was eroding away it was still like they were dealing with it but there was a production code that had to be like there was still a, a group of people that had to decide that it was okay when he did eventually approach them they obviously pushed against it saying yeah. uh it was unprecedented in its depiction of sexuality and violence right from the opening scene in yeah. which we're seeing this this couple having sex in a in a hotel room or well you know, they're the, the post sex yeah. probably yeah this, it's,
0: it's 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 by today's standards everything's pretty tame right but
1: you only get yeah. today's standards because yeah. of this movie absolutely yeah no i fully Is grant it,
0: that i just like I don't know. I don't want people to get the wrong idea about how salacious this movie is because you, if you watch it now, it's really not.
1: <laughs> She's laying in there in bed in a bra. Which, in a bra. Again, and, like a, time and like
0: a skirt.
1: <laughs> yeah. At the time, it was against
0: the standards because unmarried couples shown in the same bed uh, was yeah. like... Com- well, definitely way well. against the Hays Code um, because that we, we, went, we went over that in a, in a different episode about just how many things that... Think maybe our frankenstein episode is where we really talked about that i'm, I'm really not sure one yeah. of our other old movie ones we've talked about how restrictive that thing was
1: yeah and then we also have some of the gender non-conformity which oh, yeah they, they felt that there was some stuff going on here which i guess just to get into it now because we did talk about it last week you know there was some some anti-trans views and and just like it seems like the the norm for the time was that people weren't interested in in like gaining knowledge on any of this and they thought it was like this medical mental illness kind of yeah thing that you're, you're basically equated with. with yeah yeah the, the, mental the, illness you're... there was
0: less of a line tied between it and the crime in the in the um movie than i than i thought in the book in the book there was a little bit of more of like equating it with everything else that that bates had done um, whereas in the movie it was, it was like the psychologist even pretty quickly kind of moved on from it. Like, that's not really what this is. It's something right. else. And he like Well, and they on.
1: specifically say, and I, I know that this is not the correct term anymore, but I want to address why, but they say transvestite. Yeah, And I didn't realize the, the context exactly of why, and it's because transvestite implies it is a medical affliction. when that's incorrect so cross-dressing is the correct term these days that we use because that's what the person's doing they're choosing to
0: to cross for the for like the action i guess
1: the film kind of makes an argument i would say that psychologically he's completely a different person which is not what trans people are are feeling like this is entirely like a a schism within his his identity
0: um, yeah, they're trying to lay out like at the time was probably called multiple personality disorder and later has been redubbed uh, dissociative identity disorder. And the idea that like his brain had split, I think they even said like half and half, half is this mother person and the other half is is Norman. Getting into the shower stuff, those iconic yeah, scenes. the bathroom scenes, uh, yeah. especially the murder scene uh, is maybe, I mean, this has got to be in contention for most iconic film scene of all time top three or five. I don't think there's any right. argument.
1: Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, just like in terms of being that the most iconic or the greatest. It's yeah. made like multiple. Li- I saw most like AFI, AFI had it listed at like number two of all time. So okay. like that, that's how that's the, the pantheon in which psycho is seen yeah. today by audiences and critics alike. Psycho is actually now considered one of Hitchcock's best films. It's arguably his most famous, famous and influential Um, It has been hailed as a major work of cinematic art by international film critics and scholars who praise its slick direction, tense atmosphere, impressive camera work, memorable score, and iconic performances. It set a new level of acceptability for violence, deviant behavior, and sexuality in American films, and has been considered to be one of the earliest examples of the slasher genre, which we talked about. In 1992, it was deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant by the Lo- Library of Congress and was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry.
0: All three. <laughs> yeah. All yeah. three.
1: As we just said, uh, cast was extremely important for this film. Through the strength of his reputation, Hitchcock cast Janet Leigh for a quarter of her usual fee. Yeah, I
0: thought she was great. Um, I was struck by, like, clearly she's young. But how old she feels <laughs> it's just the time period right like that the the way that people are dressing the hairstyles the way they talk to each other i'm like she feels like she's 55 yet she looks young so is there a, just a, such a strange thing and how like stodgy everything was back then
1: and that's like the modern perspective of you saw your grandparents acting maybe in some of these ways growing up and so you yeah, think of that definitely. as like older uh you know it's, it's kind of that's Great. that generation, honestly. Yeah. Janet Lee is a, a person whose career spanned five decades in the film industry. She was discovered at like eighteen, got then entered into a contract with MGM. And then she starred in films such as Act of Violence, Little Women, Angels in the Outfield, Scaramouche. And then she started uh, acting in some more dramatic roles, such as Safari and Orson Welles' film, Touch of Evil, which we've talked oh, about in the past.
0: On another podcast that I think is now defunct. <laughs> yeah, strange, maybe could, but... Maybe you may- could find that episode out there somewhere. 33% Pulp, I think, was the name of that one.
1: Yeah, and a gr- really good conversation there, talking about Orson Welles and the the legacy yeah. of Orson Welles and Touch of Evil. Um, as, you know, in that genre as well. Her biggest success was starring as Marion Crane in uh, Psycho here. For her yeah. performance, she won the Golden Globe Award for Best Supporting Actress and earned a nomination for the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. Um, and then just something fun. She's like the original Scream Queen, which I think horror circles have now turned into something more than it was at first. It's kind of turned into like a, a badge of honor for some for some horror actors and and people who who are involved in that community a lot probably the most iconic of all time that scream in the shower Mm, and the way that she goes down highly iconic and then famously her daughter Jamie Lee Curtis would go on to be Jamie Lee Curtis
0: is her daughter is her daughter I didn't know that holy shit
1: goes on to be also arguably one of the most famous scream queens of all time as well yeah Halloween franchise yeah wow and she, they actually acted together in a few horror films. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and Janet Lee were in The Fog in 1980 together and Halloween H20, 20 years later. Wow. Yeah. That's rad. The other very iconic performances is Norman Bates here. Anthony Perkins, talking about a villain character and talking about this time period and what a character piece this is, and what like depth this character has, and yeah. um, how much he has to chew on in these scenes and how uh, eccentric he can be just one of the most iconic performances in those kinds of roles.
0: So fascinating to even today that totally holds up, man, like such an interesting performance. And uh, I will give Hitchcock credit for the change here to make Norman Bates into this like young boy next door type character rather than in the book. He's he's definitely you're more stereotypical. Uh, He's a little older, overweight, you know not good looking um and and gives off creepy vibes to like everyone he interacts with immediately whereas whereas this version of norman bates is actually kind of charming at first yeah and occasionally gives off the creepy vibes early but um you can you can kind of get drawn in and in a way that seems kind of scarier and it also i think really plays to a movie audience um who uh I'm sure there was a lot of people who were quite taken with this young Anthony Perkins.
1: I did watch a documentary. Um, it was just basically the making of Psycho where um, Joseph Stefano is wrote the screenplay and he was there recounting a lot of the stories of how he and Hitchcock collaborated. And Stefano says that Hitchcock gives him credit for making those changes that you're picking up. There is in making Norman Bates less like immediately, um, You know,
0: detestable kind of. I think they want you to feel in the book off-putting, which I will say like gives us it gives us more insight into what's going on in his mind in a way that works in a book. Like I don't think that that's something like. While I did kind of miss it in the sense of like, I think it's an interesting part of the story. How he's like fascinated with, you know, these ancient ritualistic sacrifices, and he's talking about all these books that he reads that his mother doesn't approve of. That's all really fascinating stuff in the book. I don't know that it really fits in the movie. So I I don't yeah. necessarily miss it in, in the sense of like, I don't th- necessarily think it should have been in there, but I miss it in the sense that I did like reading about it. I thought it was interesting in the book.
1: Nice to read in a book. And it's funny. I, I, I read something that like Francois Truffaut, who is another massively influential filmmaker from that time period, um, says that the novel, he, in, in having a conversation with Hitchcock, he, he claims that the novel cheats by having these extended conversations with Norman and the mother and wh- the ways that it's stating like the mother is saying something and how that's kind of cheating in the minds of the, the audience versus like what Hitchcock does, which is like implies it heavily over and over, but only shows you visually. Um, and then there's the change in, in Anthony Perkins voice. But the the, the cheating, I oh, that's was interesting. interesting.
0: I, I felt like it was kind of cheating here, too, because isn't it correct me if I'm wrong that's not Anthony Perkins doing the mother's voice that's some that's like a woman right I thought maybe we're going to see a scene of him like doing the voice and I was going to be super impressed but then I was like no that's actually a different person doing the voice
1: someone could
0: attain a voice like that I would say you know you could sure and I thought maybe he was doing it for a bit but then the more I was listening to I was like no that's not him doing it no way
1: there's things that I like about it him being more overt, like getting into the mind of him earlier, I think yeah. plays into the idea and gives you more seeds early that like the of, of what the twist is. And I think like they, Francois Ruffo and Hitchcock, of course, are going to feel like their works or their medium of which they're delivering the story is, is maybe superior. Um, so I just thought it was funny that they're willing to go that far to say, like, you're cheating in the novel by, yeah. by having these conversations between the mm-hmm. two when there's only one person there or
0: whatever. Well and it's it's fascinating too like we i mean uh we'll get into it when we get into the plot, but like he doesn't sh- like Bates doesn't show up on screen until like halfway through the movie almost um and where if this wasn't called Psycho, you know what I mean and you just went and saw some movie called like the Bates motel or something I don't know and, and like you wouldn't know what this was coming at all. Only the fact that it's called Psycho does it clue you in that this is coming.
1: That's the whole thing about the way that he he marketed the film. No one knew the script. No one knew. Yeah. They weren't allowed to talk about it with industry insiders. That the, no the, the actors didn't go out and do press for the film. So they wanted to keep the secret alive as long as possible, calling it Psycho. Even the trailer for this movie. Uh, he released was just him giving a studio tour like he was going around really? and showing the Bates Motel and, and showing up wow. oh, This is so psycho news.
0: it almost could have been like are they talking about this woman going psycho by stealing the e- money?
1: Exactly. So so that's what they were leaning on and Janet Lee was huge star at the time and killing her in a film was unheard of killing her wow. halfway through the film so them selling it by not showing Norman Bates as like a relevant character early on sells yeah. the audience coming in that's that was one of the most shocking even more so than the 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 twist at the end one of the most shocking things is that they killed Janet Lee and that's why he didn't want people to come into the movie halfway yeah. through as they might have and not be like where's janet lee this movie's marketed as a film with janet lee having missed the the her killing because there's such an impact in that
0: i love that context because now i can imagine what it was like to be in a theater to have no clue what's coming to have this mega star that you think you're there to see you know the story about her and the stolen money um, That's been compelling up so far. And then all of a sudden that moment in the shower, which really does kind of come out of nowhere, like Bates had been being creepy and he looked through the people. But that moment in the shower when he when, he, when he, all of a sudden you see the figure through the through the shower curtain. Yeah. Um, and then what happens had to just be so shocking and terrifying for people yeah they,
1: they were not accustomed to this kind of horror and they, like this yeah. level of i mean people talked about like they couldn't take showers they didn't feel safe in their showers anymore and honestly when i took a shower after watching the movie recently <laughs> i was like man it is you are pretty vulnerable in here man <laughs> like like you just don't know if somebody's walking in your house to get uh, you while you're in the
0: shower i got a shout out there's a mabim uh, uh which is my brother my brother and me mabim bam um podcast that uh they, they have a whole clip about the shower and listening to beyonce while in the shower and then what what would happen if a killer was coming in that is hilarious and i would just recommend people go listen to i mean it's like, as like a little it's a little dessert for for yeah. this yeah because they're definitely referencing psycho yeah have to yeah. be
1: the music like you said the score we've already talked about the the cutting that he did for the time was so energetic and it's so evoked
0: yeah. what's happening the stabbing and every cut you never actually see the blade like actually pierce anything which i thought was really interesting it's like you could tell they're being really held back and and honestly just like not pushing it too far even though i think you kind of like because you know these audiences are so unexpected like not used to this stuff that you don't even need to because the effect is the same
1: Yeah, the imagination fills
0: it in of like what's actually happening, even though all we really see is a knife come near a person and then cut away um, a bunch of times and a pretty relatively small amount of blood. um, And we never see any like wounds. So like it's just like, uh, again, by today's standards, super uh, tame, but for the time, shocking as hell.
1: There's a documentary that came out in 2017 called 78:52, and it's from a famous. I, the, the tagline of that of that documentary is "78 shots and 52 cuts that changed cinema forever." So it's uh, the, famously Hitchcock was going around saying after the you know after a long time had passed and everybody had seen the movie, he was going around talking about how many shots and how many setups they needed to get to get this shower shot correctly and then how many cuts were put into the edit and the way that that just wasn't done. That was like an extreme montage of like death and like this, this brutal murder that no one saw coming. And it, it did just change the way that people view nudity in the film, violence in the film. The way that you can cut something together, like you're talking about it seeming tame and they're not doing it. But for the time yeah. period, the way that he was cutting those frames so quickly and showing flashes of it happening. It was the same thing as if she was being in today's day and age, just like cut open in some gruesome and grotesque way. That's yeah. how audiences were reacting to that at the time. Some of the nudity that was there, there was like moleskin used to cover up um, Janet Lee, But then also they, they brought in like a nude model to like Oh, really so that wasn't was, even her. For, for a couple of the shots that are more, mm. um, that show a little more. Yeah. Um, and there were some sh- shots that didn't make it through the censorship. There right. were some shots that like, there was this shot, I guess, from above that like showed her butt much more. Mm. And
0: like, they were like, they couldn't have can't that, have that. They can't <laughs> have that in there. So real quick, before we move on from him, I wanted to ask about Perkins because I remember we talked about him in something else. And we were like, yeah. oh, this is Anthony Perkins. He's famous from Psycho. What was that from? Because I couldn't <laughs> put my finger on it.
1: It was uh, Murder on the Orient Express.
0: Ah, yeah. okay. okay.
1: The star-studded cast with, uh, you know, that whole ensemble. That's right. The 70-whatever version
0: we, we watched. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah, it cool. was 1974. He's an American actor, director, and singer. He was born in New York City, and he got a start as an adolescent in summer stock programs although he acted in films before he set foot on a Broadway stage. His first film, The Actress, was a disappointment, save for an Oscar nod for its costumes, and Perkins returned to the boards instead. He starred in Friendly Persuasion in 1956, which earned him the Golden Globe Award for Best New Actor of the Year and a nomination for the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. Rushes of the film led to Perkins landing a seven-year, semi-exclusive contract with Paramount Pictures. He was their last matinee idol. Um, so again, we're seeing like almost the end of some of these, the, the contract error, like the big studio yeah. era here um, with with people that are acting around this time and, and creating films around this time. Paramount was concerned with heterosexualizing Perkins' image, which led to a string of romantic roles alongside Audrey Hepburn, Sophia Loren, and Shirley MacLaine. Now, this is something I didn't know about Anthony Perkins, but um, he... Was a gay man, and he oh, okay. it seemed like so the that's time why they period, were concerned with it <laughs> exactly. And for yeah. the time period seems that it was forcing him into the closet, and uh, yeah, like a lot of other stuff like this. But what goes on eventually, it, it just gets to be really sad, honestly. Um, he eventually would go through like conversion therapy, oh god, um, and like marry a woman. And it, it, it seems that he still would have affairs here and there, um, with men. And it's just really unfortunate to look back at this time period and think about how heartbreaking that is for an actor like this and such a massive um, icon for for horror films and for fucking awful is what it is. And
0: uh, it's a good thing we don't have anybody dealing with that kind of shit these days. And there's no more conversion therapy. I wish I could say confidently. Yeah, I know that it is still a thing that goes on and is awful still. Yeah.
1: I would say that the, the, the artistic industries tend to be more uh, accepting of, of yeah. people from all different walks of life these days. But so it's just crazy to see someone like this. And I, I just was shocked. I, I didn't know. Um, and what a thing to have to go through in your life, you know, and he uh, unfortunately eventually would um, die of complications with AIDS. So it's like wow. he, I think in the in the 90s, he could be seen today as, a, as like a gay icon. And instead, Mm. because of the the society at the time, I think it's kind of something that's hush-hush and not talked about. So I definitely wanted to mention that here, Um, something I just wasn't aware of. He was able to score an occasional serious role, uh, such as in the Broadway play Look Homeward, Angel, for which he was nominated for a Tony Award. Although he was once again cast as a romantic lead in Jane Fonda's film debut, Tall Story. He was shortly thereafter cast as Norman Bates in Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, which established him as a horror icon and garnered him a Bambi Award nomination for Best Actor, as well as a win for the International Board of Motion Picture Reviewers. His work in the 1960 horror thriller also led to him being typecast, and in order just to escape the same villainous roles, he bought himself out of the Paramount contract and moved to France, where he debuted in European film with Goodbye Again. That film earned him a Best Actor Bravo Auto nomination, a second career Bambi nomination, as well as his winning the Cannes Film Festival Award for Best Actor. After European films featuring Sophia Lauren, Orson Welles, Melina McCory, and Bridget Bardot, Perkins returned to America in 1968 with his first American film after an eight-year absence, Pretty Poison. In the film's wake, he starred in commercially and critically successful films such as Catch-22, Play It As It Lays, Murder on the Orient Express, and Mahogany. He would also eventually reprise his role as Norman Bates in Psycho 2 in 1983, Psycho 3 in 1986, and Psycho 4, The Beginning, in
0: 1990. Wow, yeah. So uh, one that stands out from that list is Catch-22, which is one that's high on our list of of things we should cover one day. I didn't know it was, it was him. That's really cool to hear. Um, also, I did read a little bit more about how Bloch's follow-up novels were about other characters, not about Norman Bates. And that, I think, shows a little bit why they probably didn't go that route in the movies, because they were wanting a return of Norman Bates and that character um, to get people to go see these movies. Um, So that was like those two, the, the stories diverged in that way, although I think Block did write like a later novel that that had a return of Norman Bates.
1: Interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if you can get Anthony Perkins to be Norman Bates, you do that for as long as you can. I guess. Yeah. So that, that makes yeah. sense to me. The person we have to talk about before moving on into the plot here is Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, he was an English film director, screenwriter, producer and editor. He's widely regarded as one of the most influential figures in the history of cinema. In a career spanning six decades, he's directed over 50 feature films, many of which are still widely watched and studied today. Known as the master of suspense, he became as well known as any of his actors thanks to his many interviews, his cameo roles in most of his films, and his hosting and producing the television anthology Alfred Hitchcock Presents from 1955 to 1965.
0: I spotted his cameo in this movie. He's standing out in front of the, like, the business where uh yeah. where they work at the beginning very so, oh, early is. on too I, yeah. I didn't
1: see it i saw it in my research after the fact That's oh really a very yeah i spotted one. him yeah very yeah. sneaky one so typically like it's a, you see him a little bit more but yeah in this case uh i was he was speaking with the screenwriter and um he basically was like i have to get it in early on this one because yeah. later on once you get to the motel like it needs to be hyper focused on all that stuff going over there his films garnered 46 academy award nominations including six wins although he never won the award for Best Director despite five nominations. Hitchcock initially trained as a technical clerk and copyright before entering the film industry in 1919 as a title card designer, which I wanted to note. Title card in this film, very cool. And honestly, yeah. all of his films, the title card is very cool.
0: Very cool, yeah. The only clue as to what's coming, honestly, is from that title card, if you didn't know, you know, especially with the fact there's no trailer, apparently, that actually shows anything.
1: <laughs> and to talk about him here, uh, storyboard artist Saul Bass, actually, uh, you know, he storyboarded out that famous shower scene and and many other scenes, but he also did the, uh, the intro, uh, the title sequence here, um, and he also did it in Vertigo, so he worked alongside... Um, Alongside Hitchcock quite a few times, and there there are some myths that go on with Hitchcock films, and specifically this film. There's a myth that Saul Bass uh, actually directed the shower scene, and there's so many people that were on set that dispute this and say that that is not the case, and Hitchcock would never have allowed him to do that because he wouldn't allow really anybody to direct for him. So mm. uh, that's a that's one of those myths that people people hear.
0: Why do you think that's a myth people want like seem to want to believe?
1: Because I think that he has led, I think there were interviews and things like that that went on at the time that uh, people were were believing. And um, it just comes down to the fact that like his storyboards were used for reference very heavily. Mm. So the vision
0: was there, Um, you know, many, like even like- uh, Maybe people just wanting to like give credit to him that they didn't feel like was being given maybe.
1: Yeah, and I think it's just like one of those things where people want to, to like, create these conspiracies sometimes, you yeah. know, like, oh man, like, you know, did did uh Spielberg direct poltergeist or not? And like we've right, you know, we've yeah. talked about that kind of stuff as well. Um there's if you look at his storyboards though, like the the killer appearing as a silhouette, um the details like this the close up of the slashing knife, uh Janet Lee's desperate outstretched arm, the shower curtain being torn off its hooks, the transition from the drain to Marion Crane's dead eye, which is incredible filmmaking. Awesome. Um, yeah. Uh, that's all, that's all in his storyboard there. So, so again, credit to him for those, but he did not direct that scene.
0: Right. So he he had the concepts. Yeah.
1: So Hitchcock's directorial debut was the British-German silent film The Pleasure Garden in 1925. His first successful film, The Lodger, a story of the London fog in 1927, helped to shape the thriller genre, and Blackmail in 1929 was the first British talkie. His thrillers, The 39 Steps in 1935 and The Lady Vanishes in 1938, are ranked among the greatest British films of the 20th century. By 1939, he had international recognition and producer David O. Selznick, persuaded him to move to Hollywood. A string of successful films followed, including Rebecca, Foreign Correspondent, Suspicion, Shadow of a Doubt, and Notorious. Rebecca won the Academy Award for Best Picture with Hitchcock nominated as Best Director. He also received Oscar nominations for Lifeboat, Spellbound, Rear Window, and Psycho. His other notable works include Rope, Strangers on a Train, Dial M for Murder, To Catch a Thief, The Trouble with Harry, Vertigo, North by Northwest, The Birds, and Marnie, all of which were also financially successful and are highly regarded by film historians. Hitchcock made multiple films with some of the biggest stars in Hollywood, including four films with Cary Grant, four with James Stewart, three with Ingrid Bergman, and three consecutively with Grace Kelly. As of 2021, nine of his films have been selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry, including his personal favorite, Shadow of a Doubt. He received the BAFTA Fellowship in 1971, the AFI Life Achievement Award in 1979, and was knighted in December of that year, four months before his death in April of 1980. His style includes the use of editing and camera movement to mimic a person's gaze, thereby turning viewers into voyeurs and framing shots to maximize anxiety and fear. The film critic, Robin Wood, wrote that the meaning of a Hitchcock film, quote, is there in the method, in the progression from shot to shot. A Hitchcock film is an organism with the whole implied in every detail and every detail related to the whole.
0: Okay, yeah, I can see that. that I think really good writers are that way too, where you can look at like every every page seems to play into some sort of overarching theme or overarching goal for the for the work itself. So I think that's just really masterful art in general. Um, one of the things you can look at is where like everything um, is is of a unified whole to a specific purpose. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: I mean, we, we, we talk about these kinds of filmmakers and I think like attention to detail is a shorthand for me when I when I talk about these kinds of people. But when you get someone who's just a genius that that understands art in a way that like few do, you get that like perfect synthesis, like you're saying, like every single thing in the frame, every single thing is done so intentionally, and it still feels organic and it still feels artful. And I think Hitchcock is definitely a, a case of that.
0: I think recognizing opportunity too, um, rec- recognizing that you have a chance to tweak things, to to touch up things, to. To make every little thing play into it, right, and not just not just taking things and doing them by rote and saying, "Well, this is a this is a scene, this is an establishing shot. We're just gonna do it the way everybody does it." Like you find a new way, uh, you know, find an interesting way to do every little thing. Um, and I think writers can take note of that too when it comes to their writing. It's finding little ways to to make it feel different and also of a unified whole.
1: And one of my favorite things about artists like this too, is like you can often tell that they're students of the art, right? Like you're you're standing on the shoulders of giants often. Like I've I mentioned like Hitchcock is pulling from German expressionism. He's pulling from German film in general. He's pulling from French film. He's pulling from Italian film. He's pulling from Soviet film and uh, British film. And, and you get somebody who's able to blend styles like that. And like you said, maybe use opportunities to combine them to to make a greater whole um, in ways that people haven't done before and seeing opportunities to do that. Um, I have to mention this as well. In December of 1926, Hitchcock married the English screenwriter Alma Reveal. Uh, Reveal became her husband's closest collaborator. Charles Chaplin wrote in 1982, quote, the Hitchcock touch had four hands and two were Alma's. When Hitchcock accepted the AFI Life Achievement Award in 1979, he said that he wanted to mention four people who have given me the most affection, appreciation, and encouragement, and constant collaboration. The first of the four is a film editor, the second is a script writer, the third is the mother of my daughter, Pat, and the fourth is as fine a cook as ever performed miracles in a domestic kitchen, and their names are Alma Reveal. Reveal wrote or co-wrote on many of Hitchcock's films, including Shadow of a Doubt, Suspicion, and The 39 Steps.
0: Wow. That's really cool.
1: Yeah, they're a package deal there. And um, I've read so many cool things about Hitchcock in, in doing research for this, but one of the things that I appreciate too is like he would end the day sooner, I think, than, than the norm at the time. And often it was to have time with family and to spe- specifically spend time with his wife. So they would always go to dinner um, after a shooting day or something like that. And to see someone at this high caliber have the opportunity and have the, the want to, you know, to to savor life and and also you know perform this art at such a high level I think is is it's cool because like I think often we think of these people as like single track minded yeah, and they having terrible
0: about... work life balance right yeah absolutely
1: there are books and books and books and documentaries and all kinds yeah. of stuff you can read on about Anthony Perkins about Janet Lee and especially about Alfred Hitchcock, but this we got to keep this podcast in a manageable time length. So we're going to move now into the plot. During a Friday afternoon tryst in a Phoenix hotel, real estate secretary Marion Crane and her boyfriend Sam Loomis discuss their inability to get married because of Sam's debts. Marion returns to work, steals $40,000 and sets off to drive to Sam's home in Fairville, California. She pulls over and falls asleep and is woken up by a police officer the next morning. Her anxious behavior makes him question her motives and he asks to see her license but lets her go marion hurriedly trades her car with arizona plates for a car with california plates the trade is all for naught as the officer had been watching the whole time she stops for the night at the bates motel located off the main highway during a heavy rainstorm and hides the stolen money inside a newspaper proprietor norman bates descends from a large house overlooking the motel registers marion under an alias and invites her to dine with him After Norman returns to his house, Marion overhears him arguing with his mother about his wish to dine with Marion. Norman returns, apologizes for his mother's outburst, and discusses his hobby as a taxidermist, his mother's illness, and how people have a private trap they want to escape. When Marion suggests that Norman should have his mother institutionalized, he becomes greatly offended and insists there is nothing seriously wrong with her. Marion decides to drive back to Phoenix in the morning to return the stolen money. As she showers, a shadowy figure appears and stabs her to death. Norman cleans up the murder scene, putting Marion's body, her belongings, and the hidden cash in her car and sinks it in a swamp.
0: I wanted to start off by asking you, because you sent me a text about this, um, and I also watched the movie on the date that it says at the start of the movie, but how close to the time was it? And you want yeah. to like, tell me about that? This is
1: the spookiest thing that Alfred Hitchcock, of all the things that he did to me, uh, you know, throughout <laughs> my adolescence and, and into adulthood, somehow... I started this film uh, yesterday. Now it was December 11th,
0: December 11th at
1: 2.43 p.m. At the beginning of this film, there is a title sequence that comes up that says December 11th. It says Friday, December 11th. Granted, it was Monday, but it says Friday, December 11th, and that fades away. And then the next thing on screen is 2.43 p.m. And I could not believe it. It was mind blowing. I texted you two minutes later, I paused the movie, texted you two minutes later. And I just I've never I got I, I have goosebumps right now thinking about it. It, <laughs> it was like yeah. one of those things where our, our you know, our patrons selected this project, who that's knew right. that we were going to cover it, who yep. knew that I would watch the movie rather than on the weekend on a Monday. At exactly that time, just I don't know, it's one of the craziest things that's ever happened on the podcast. So I just yeah. I had to mention it.
0: What a spectacular bit of serendipity there. That is that is amazing. And uh, yeah, definitely creepy, too, at the same time, because, you know, December the 11th, here we are watching this thing um, and capping off our year with an iconic horror film. Um, Clearly, it is at the right time. And uh, shout out to all the patrons who chose it for that reason, because this really lined up.
1: Yeah. And uh, I actually read that the reason that he decided to put that title up with the date is there in the one of the wide shots, you could see some Christmas decorations. So he was like, now we have to sell it, what time of year it was, because we can see that in the background. (laughs) So this is a Christmas movie. The Christmas movie. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, to start out, there is, um, in her office, when Marion goes into her office, there's another person working, and she kind of comments on how that kind of sleazy guy was flirting with her. If you can believe it, that is Patricia Hitchcock. That's Hitchcock's daughter. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, the other woman. Yeah, Carolyn. Wow, his, okay, that's his, his daughter. Name. He would only cast her in movies if she was right for the part. And so apparently this was like a big <laughs> moment because this she, she was right for this part. And kind of a cool little nod there that there's a Hitchcock cameo, but there's also a Hitchcock daughter cameo?
0: Yeah, yeah, interesting.
1: Watching as a modern viewer, there's a couple things that stood out to me. One of them being, there is just no way if a police officer was following you that you would still go through with swapping out your car while yeah. he's staring at you. Because the idea (laughs) of getting rid of the car is so that no one knows that you got rid of the car, but he's watching you do
0: it. So, yeah. So, let's back up a little bit. I looked up how much $40,000 in today's money is. It's over $400,000 in today's money. Yeah. So, she just has over $400,000 in her purse, and she just, like, is walking around with it. She takes it home, you know, all this stuff, right? Um, they just trust her to take it to the bank, you know. Like, yeah, put a half a million dollars in your purse and go take it to the bank. Sure, um, very cavalier with this money, um, considering like its its purchasing power. Um, and then yeah, the, this whole thing with the cop. Like, I wanted to give her credit for like kind of throwing them off the scent and like she was being pretty clever with the way she was doing things. But then yeah, as soon as she gets to the to the used car dealership, she starts behaving so sus. <laughs> She's like. Uh uh, no, I just want it now. No, I don't want to test drive it. No, I don't care. I just want it now. I'm not in a hurry. What are you talking about? I'm in a hurry. Why do you think I'm in a hurry? I'm not in a hurry. Give it to me now. And I'm like, I'm like, settle down. You're like you're messing this all up. You're doing it so poorly. Um, because before that she could do it pretty well, but like, yeah, she loses all composure here. And this cop who Looks just like fucking James Woods. I don't know what it is. I thought it was, I was like, this can't be James Woods. Is it like a time traveler? How is this possible? Um, just fucking staring at her with these big aviators. And again, that's that. That's that. Uh, the gaze, like you were talking about with the film. Um, just looking at her. Um, I felt it the whole time. Like the idea of someone just watching her from afar is kind of a foreshadowing of what was going to happen with with Norman uh, yeah. soon. Um, and then it also recontextualizes the whole thing because. At first, this is like, a, oh, she's going to get found out. But then this ends up being like how what happened to her is discovered because we needed this this trail.
1: They're they're really selling that initial story, right? Which is so smart for this twist that we're, there's multiple twists. But, you know, the, the, the first one uh, that's yeah. coming. But I also read that Hitchcock has like a a healthy fear. I think he called it or something like that of, of law enforcement. <laughs> so uh, he, <laughs> he, he like really wanted to put that in the film here. Uh, yeah. I think he said something along the lines of like, he, there was like a his dad wrote a letter. He was meant to drop off at the police station. And when he did, the police officer like put him in a cell for a little while and was like, This is what we do with naughty boys or something. And oh, boy. so that kind of like got seated in his in his mind and he just like didn't like law enforcement. So he decided to put that in into this yeah. film here. Uh and Ahead I think it's time. <laughs> yeah. There's some cool stuff with um some some trademarks of Hitchcock, like driving in a car is such a Hitchcock thing, especially he does it so well down the barrel, looking directly at the person who's actually kind of breaking the fourth wall by looking at us. Yeah. Looking down the barrel of the camera is just something that, like, I think typically will break the immersion. But in his case, I don't know how he balances this. It doesn't break immersion for me.
0: He does such a good job with the with everything in the car. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with like the reverse shots and what we're seeing and like stuff that's being shown because it's, it's clearly being like projected on something behind the behind the set, right? And you can tell that it's that kind of setup. But then he he keeps breaking that and showing us the outside of the car and showing us things that that keeps that immersion real. Um, and yeah, I was taken with with all of these scenes of her in the car and just how good they were. Um, she's having all these like she's replaying the conversations been having in her mind, and she's finding all these parts, parts where she's realizing, "Oh shit, I'm going to be found out." Here's all the mistakes I made. And then when the rain starts coming down, um, he does such a good job of selling how difficult it is for her to see and how dangerous it is, and how she's like, "I got to get off the road." And, and um, I, I thought all of that played really well, and also was like setting up this creepy moment right where you're coming in out of the rain to this hotel there,
1: there's a few things that i noticed that i didn't uh ever on a previous viewing reflections and mirrors and mm. uh, because, and shadows especially the way that he went about lighting a lot of this especially once we get to the hotel the motel um is the the shadows are like creeping up the wall behind the characters. And then like the reflections, the way that like she's scared of these mirrors at first uh, when she first comes into the the motel. And there's these repeated moments of like Norman like with like a window or something next to him where you're seeing a a reflection of him again and kind of evoking the idea that there's two Normans in the room and that kind of thing. And so that's something that's kind of subtle that maybe is subjective, but I picked up Mm -hmm. on this time as maybe a motif that they were they were trying to dig into or Hitchcock was digging into there.
0: So for that particular moment where Norman leads her into her room and he's like introducing her to the room. um, Yeah, I, I was taken with that scene and I thought there was a lot of like clever foreshadowing and thematic things going on because he opens up the window. He's like, oh, it's stuffy in here. And he opens up the window and to the storm. And I was like, well, why choose to do that? And I think it works on a couple of different levels. One, it sells this being a real location and not being on a set because you, like you, you, the fact that there's like a storm going on and you're opening up a window and there's like a breeze coming in. But also it's like an intrusion and him like choosing to intrude upon her space already there, like kind of foreshadows what he's going to do with the people. Um, and then, of course, the the brilliant moment where he's kind of pointing out everything in the room and then he turns on the light in the bathroom and he says, here's the and then he like stutters and can't say the word bathroom and she has to fill it in for him. Um, and, and it's, again, like a insight into his mind and what he's planning already at this stage.
1: There's so much foreshadowing that goes on too. like they very soon after this, they they start to have a meal together. They're sitting down together and we he starts talking about the taxidermy in one of the most like iconic, I would say, moments again, you have these birds, right? They're all taxidermied yeah. up and specifically that looming owl.
0: Owl. Yeah, and I wanted
1: to ask what you got from that.
0: I got a predator. Um, and it's right over him and it's, it's hunting like, right. This is what an owl looks like hunting. And I was like, that's what he's doing right now. Um, and that's what we're, that's what we're sort of linking him to.
1: I got the same thing as you, right? Like he's the way that he's framed in one of those shots with the owl Mm -hmm. up above him. Um, just like, just preying on this, the way he talks about birds and the way that he, he mentions like you eat like a bird, all of these things are like evoking, like some, some sort of hunt or eat or consume. And
0: I was like, man, they're actually, eat quite a bit they're quite voracious or whatever he says yeah it was that a raven he was he was tapping on there maybe that <laughs> little edgar Allan poe connection maybe, I, don't, yeah. I don't know i didn't even think about it at the time but just in this moment i'm thinking about it you know there was the, that was the other one he was like i think he even like puts his hand on it at one point
1: yeah i, I could i don't know if it's for sure it was a raven but i mean like if yeah. you're doing horror stuff, some sort of black like bird maybe, yeah maybe poe does uh have play a small influence and you want to do a little cameo there why not um you mentioned the uh set and it it all the bates motel all the bates house and and the stuff uh the the motel specifically that that all is a set and yeah. it's on the universal lot um and it's still there if you go on the universal
0: wow. studios tram tour you you can tour this that's cool they were like set. this this is so important we're not gonna we're gonna keep it oh yeah it just that's continued awesome. to be
1: iconic and it's a big part of their tour i think um and it's hitchcock right like to, that's massive history to to be able to you know go back and see well one of the things that that didn't work quite as well for me too it, it, as it did in the book and i know that Truffaut set and brilliant filmmaker Truffaut. But and I know he said it's cheating, but the way that they do it in this movie, the conversation between Bates and the and his mother was also kind of like wonky and because yeah. like she just has the window open and they're just like screaming at each other
0: in a house Yeah, nearby. she can hear it from pretty far away, quite clearly. And it doesn't help that it's definitely another person's voice as we've discussed, which is also kind of cheating.
1: And, and you know, it's creepy uh and the voice Specifically, the voice of the mother, I just felt like it, you know, that was a moment where my modern sensibilities where I was like, okay, like, it's a little hokey just to get us there, but it works well enough.
0: I did love the moment where uh, he says, uh, what does he say? A boy's best friend is, is his mother. An amazing line, uh, especially coming from him.
1: Right. And what that, you know, goes on to mean on your second viewing. Yeah, yeah. when you're
0: that this had to be one of the first movies where everyone was like, I got to see it again. Right. And I got to I got to see what they did to foreshadow this foreshadow this shocking moment and all of a sudden all this stuff makes sense whereas the first time you see it you're like why are they doing this and why is he being so creepy and like what's going on
1: it's i mean there's definitely been others leading up to that but this is definitely one that was like so popular that everyone saw it and i'm sure they went and saw it multiple times because like you said
0: it's all i feel like that's a caveat we should always give whenever we're getting really excited about something being the first it's like it's probably not the first but it's one of it's so big right it's like the touchstone it's the one that like everybody saw so for many people it probably was the first right like even if it's not the first that was done it's the first that a lot of people experienced
1: but this moves us into the the shower scene we've talked about it a little bit but yeah. a couple of things i want to note in watching some of these documentaries and making of's uh janet lee there's another myth the myth is for her to execute those screams as well as she did Hitchcock would suddenly change it to really cold water and it would get her myth totally uh, okay she did All not right. need that to get the screams correct she is in fact a very proficient scream queen she can figure out how to do that on her own as an actor and she did sure. uh, that that myth has been squashed as well the uh, she, although there were things that were uncomfortable about it um, and specifically she talked a lot about the scene where she's uh, like bent over the side after she's been stabbed quite a bit. Yeah. And that seat, she actually had to lay there motionless. Um, and originally she was gonna wear contacts, but then then like there was gonna be some adjustment period that that they weren't gonna have time for. So she actually had to lay there and they did that really slow pull out from there and then eventually pan away from her. And uh, then moves to like into the room, the camera moves into the room to show the money on the table yep. and then a pan out the window to the, to the Bates house. Um, again, incredible blocking, incredible use of a shot. And um, like moving the camera and the yep. scene in a motivated way to tell a story all in one all in one go. Um, and like that looming threat outside of the Bates house. Uh, there is the moment where in that it cuts to the shower head again for a second and cuts back to her. She actually had to take a breath there. So they had to find like a cutting point. But outside of that, she was like completely motionless. And that shot, is probably the most haunting shot in the movie. Like you know, even more so than her being stabbed and everything. The moment she's laying there, lifeless, and the it's way such an awkward position.
0: Out. It really sells what just happened. Um, and and just backing up a little bit to the moment where we see the blood, and it's black and white, so it's just a darkness mm-hmm. to the water, um, going down the drain, and like you know, it's it's like mimicking her life being pulled from her, bleeding out of her. And then we get the, you know, the 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 moment with the with the eye, like it's it's so um, iconic and and such a cool way to tie all that together. And this this woman's life is is just, you know, getting snuffed out in front of us in in a shocking way that um, is going to change movies forever as soon as people saw it.
1: Another this one isn't a myth. This is actually just kind of a, a lore at this point. Okay. Uh, another thing that people talk about in film history. That's uh, chocolate syrup. That blood is is in fact chocolate really? syrup. Famously, okay. yeah. People talk about it all the time. It's uh, one of those like uh, film trivia things that if you know, you know.
0: Probably like red probably wasn't coming out like enough to where you could see it on, on, on camera in black the black and white. And white. Yeah, exactly,
1: yep. Yeah. So um, super famous there. Another thing that I think is implied, I was thinking about the comparison, obviously with this adaptation podcast, the comparison to the source material where she decides she's gonna give the money back. And I do think that it's possibly implied that she was planning to go back to give the money back in this case, right? And and this shower is like her, her like she's like the this. It's specifically her her performance too. It's like she's smiling and she seems yeah. like she's relieved. I was
0: gonna say she looks really happy in the the shower. Yeah. And it
1: seems like she's made a decision that she's like, all right, it's going to be fine. I'm going to give this money back. And she's made a decision to go back. And um, maybe that's obvious. Maybe,
0: maybe, maybe something to do with her taking that note of like 40,000 minus 700. Like the reason she's tracking it is she's intending to say like, Hey, I did spend 700 of it. This is how much is left. I maybe I'm going to repay it to you or something. No, she's like,
1: you guys are just out 700 now.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. Yeah. That. I, I, it's a funny moment too. There, where she she writes the the note to herself. Because I'm like, I mean, forty thousand minus seven hundred. Feel like yeah, I can do that math in my head usually, a little yeah. bit. <laughs> but hey, if you need to write down evidence so that you can flush it down the toilet, then right. to show the t- toilet for the first time in American cinema, then go for it.
0: Right. It was interesting. Uh, there was this thing that that Bates kept doing. Norman Bates kept doing with uh, gum, and uh, he he would like. I don't know. I didn't really know what was going on at first, but he would just be chewing and he would kind of mm-hmm. throw something in his mouth real quick. And he'd start doing this chewing. Yeah. It was actually um, candy corn. If you, there's a bag that he's holding. I was like, is this gum? But then like, it would go away after a while. That's interesting. Cause I've always heard about like villainous characters. It's a thing to have them eat right. To have them like eat on screen. Yes, and I wonder, like, is this one of the early cases of that?
1: It really could be, and I actually read that that was improvised. That that Anthony Perkins wanted to do that, and and Hitchcock was uh, would allow improvisation, and that's something else we should talk about with his filmmaking uh, techniques. Is He's like, I'm fine with improvisation. I'm fine with you doing this or that, but you have to be on mark for the yeah. movement of my camera. If my camera's in motion, you need to be following it and keep the distance and everything like that. And he was a, he was a dictator when it came to that stuff. He was definitely uh, uncompromising mm-hmm. in in the way that he was he would go about filming things because he had a very specific vision for them and he wanted it executed well. But outside of that, he I like that he was allowing. Some, some kind of improvisation like that for Anthony Perkins to, to start eating. And that becomes really iconic to his performance, as well as the way that, man, there's this moment when the investigator, the private investigator shows up and he, they're looking them. over at the book. Um, to see who's been whose names have been written, and there and there's this, this say, low yeah. angle shot of Anthony Perkins, and he cranes his neck over mm-hmm. sideways,
0: and, and kind like, of gets upside down. I don't know if he's chewing or what, but like he you is. see his throat moving as he's yeah, doing he's it,
1: chewing, and it's so yeah. awkward and off putting, yeah. and it just like really sold that character as being like so bizarre.
0: I love that moment. And yeah, I, that's. that's... Absolutely. It
1: really stood out to me, that, that moment of the performance. And I don't know if that was again, like Im- an improvised thing where he just got really weirdly craned his neck over, yeah. um, but I-, I noticed it and it was effective. The other thing we have to talk about with the shower scene before we move on is the iconic score. Um,
0: of course, yeah. Yeah.
1: The screeching violins, violas and cellos, uh, th- it's all string instruments. And in the entire film score is all string instruments. The composer is Bernard Herrmann And this, this specific part is titled the murder Hitchcock originally intended to have no music for the sequence and all motel scenes, but Herman insisted he try his composition afterwards Hitchcock agreed it vastly intensified the scene and nearly doubled Herman's
0: salary. (laughs) Wow, I can see that the making it have no score would also be quite striking but this this is so iconic I, I'm, I'm really glad we got it so
1: it was a budgetary thing i from what i understand to go with exclusively strings okay uh at first but it it lends itself so well and i, I read some stuff that i was way outside of my depth because i don't i'm not a musician like
0: music theory about why it's so yeah but it's the it's idea that like, and screeching
1: well there's no other instrument from what i understand again take it with a grain of salt uh that has the, the the range the dynamic range of us of the screech and the low that string instruments can give you and and because of that it's it, like psychologically it does something to us as humans so to to okay. only use string instruments for for the entire score and i just got to say like the score is masterful even in the moments that it's not the the very iconic part like when the murders yeah. happen.
0: oh no it's great throughout and it, and it foreshadows this moment
1: yes it you builds. Know, with other, it's, other this, moments, yeah. it's this slow building definitely makes you feel like something, something's looming for sure. Yeah. Uh, so I felt a lot of that, and uh, that scene. I mean, it's just been endlessly referenced endlessly uh this is like
0: i'd seen this scene before even though i hadn't seen the whole movie right
1: and the sound has been used a thousand times in every movie it's been on
0: my halloween playlist forever (laughs) yeah yeah
1: yeah we appreciate the the score there and just the masterful filmmaking in the shower scene and um i I do highly recommend people go check out more because there's an entire documentary just about this shower scene the one i talked about 78 52 hitchcock's shower scene Um, came out in 2017. I recommend checking it out. I watched it for this. uh, And we may even cover it for the podcast as a bonus episode at some point.
0: Yeah, I can go on the list. Sure.
1: Marion's sister, Lila, arrives in Fairville a week later, tells Sam about the theft and demands to know her whereabouts. He denies knowing anything about her disappearance. A private investigator named Arbogast saying that he has been hired to retrieve the money. He stops at the Bates Motel and questions Norman, whose nervous behavior and inconsistent answers arouse his suspicion. He examines the guest register and discovers that from her handwriting that Marianne spent a night in the motel. When Arbogast learns that Marianne had spoken to Norman's mother, he has to speak to her, but Norman refuses to allow it. After he enters the Bates' home to search for Norman's mother, the shadowy figure emerges from the bedroom and stabs him to death. When Sam and Lila do not hear back from Arbogast, Sam goes to the motel to look for him. He sees a figure in the house who he assumes is Norman's mother. Lila and Sam alert the local sheriff, who tells them Norman's mother died in a murder-suicide by strychnine poisoning ten years earlier. The sheriff suggests that Arbogast lied to Sam and Lila so he could pursue Marion and the money. Convinced that something happened to Arbogast, Lila and Sam drive to the motel. Sam distracts Norman in the office while Lila sneaks into the house. Suspicious, Norman becomes agitated and knocks Sam unconscious. As he goes to the house lila hides in the fruit cellar where she discovers the mother's mummified body she screams in horror and norman wearing women's clothing and a wig enters the cellar and tries to stab him at the police station a psychiatrist explains that norman killed his mother and her lover 10 years earlier out of jealousy unable to bear the guilt he mummified his mother's corpse and began treating it as if she were still alive he recreated his mother as an alternate personality as jealous and possessive towards norman as he felt about his mother When Norman is attracted to a woman, mother takes over. He had killed two other women before Marion and Arbogast. The psychiatrist concludes that mother has now submerged Norman's personality. Norman sits in a jail cell and hears his mother saying the murders were all his doing. Marion's car is retrieved from the swamp. So to talk about the uh, sinking of the vehicle when Norman's hiding Marion's body in the car, um, the moment where it drives in and then starts to sink stops and then sinks all the way down Yeah, uh, was done with like hydraulics. Basically they, they like drained the swamp, put this hydraulic lift that you would use at like a, you know, to lift a car at like a mechanic shop mm-hmm. um, and they used it to like stop it and then continue to go down. And I just get that, that is so difficult. I feel like to, to yeah. get right. And they ha- only had one shot at it. So that's the shot that we see in the movie.
0: Wow. What if they panned over and our tax was there and like going down from Never would, Story 2. <laughs> it would make me cry again. That's what would happen. <laughs> On a similar rig, if I remember correctly.
1: So some of the changes in the adaptation process here is we get less of that Lila Sam possible romance budding.
0: Yeah, which I was going to say great change to not have when she walks in in the book. Sam walks right up to her and gives her a hug and a kiss. And then she has to go uh what's going on and then he's like oh you're not her you're not my girlfriend you're the sister oh my gosh you look so similar i'm like oh my god this is cringy um <laughs> let's hope that this doesn't happen in the movie and then it, thankfully it doesn't because it's ridiculous
1: <laughs> yeah and i think it focuses up the story some right like we yeah. want it to be about norman once it gets to that halfway point we want to know what's going on with norman and we want to see these characters. We want to believe Lila and Sam as characters on their own. And we want to see them pursue.
0: I honestly liked them as like a pair here. I like the way they work together. I like the way that it really was more Lila pushing for everything. And that's true in the book too. Sam, um, he goes along with it, but he's not the one who's like pushing to be like, we're going to go investigate. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. I thought it was effective. I I like them and what they do with the characters here and that they do keep it more platonic I, yeah. Cause it's also weird for Sam to be like moving on so quick after he just found out that Marion has died, has died with her sister or less.
1: what did you think of Arbogast in this movie
0: and, and his yeah. impact? He, I thought he was really good. You know, he, he, he has one of those faces that looks super familiar. So I've probably seen him in other stuff or he just looks like other people. I I've seen and stuff. I don't know. Um, But, you know, I think he plays that kind of character that, that the audience probably thought like, okay, this guy's going to figure it out. He's, He's the detective. He's come in and like he's also I thought it was really interesting how when he goes to the house, that's our first time in that set from from all time before that. It was just up on the hill. Right. It was this distant thing. And then he's the first one who actually goes in there. Um, And then at this point in the movie, you still don't know the reveal. Right. It's it's kept really till the end because the way it was shot, you never really saw for sure that that was Norman Bates um, who killed uh, who killed Marion in the shower. So when you think it's still the mother, you think that there's this mother who's killing people and that um, Norman Bates is complicit and covering up for her, but he's not the one who's actually killing. Um, So there's a lot of like interesting stuff. I'm trying to imagine like what it would be like to be an audience member in the 60s, seeing it for the first time. Right. And like what they were thinking in these moments. And uh, yeah, you think the mother has come out and killed him. Um, With another, you know, slashing moment where he falls down the stairs, very tame by today's standards, but probably pretty shocking at the time. Um, Another surprise kill that I don't think the audience would have seen coming.
1: Yeah, and the way that it's shot, too, is like, it's so like lingering on him, coming up the steps, and it's a very slow shot, then immediately into this quick cut from above that's a very awkward angle. And then he's boom, boom, stabbed by, you know, someone in women's clothing. So it's, again, selling that.
0: And that becomes important later when um, we have Lila exploring the house, looking for the mother, because at that point we still think she's a real person, living person that she's looking for. Um, and so we're like, oh shit, what happens when she finds her? Is she going to, you know, get stabbed? Just like we saw happen to Ar- ArborGast?
1: The way that they shot that, by the way, as he like falls all the way down the stairs was there was like yeah. a rig that the- he was like attached to, like with the camera and they like slowly. moved. kind of And he's like back <laughs> and forth. Yeah. But then I think they also shot like a separate, a separate plate to to then put the film over top of it um mm. so that okay. you know it looked like he was actually falling down the stairs um using the technology they had available for the time i think it still looks fairly good but you can definitely tell that something's going on there um and then we get to the shot of norman's hiding arbogast's body in the swamp as well and yeah. he's like standing out by the swamp and that's when lila and sam uh get there and they start screaming and yelling and they're like where are you they're just you know screaming for for marion And there's this shot where the light is hitting Norman on either side of his face, and the middle of his face is in shadow still while he's standing over there. And it's just like, it's so creepy. It's so smart Mm. to use your lighting that way. And I swear I've seen that that technique used a million times. One of the specific times that came to mind was um, Sin City. If you've seen that, okay. where like, they use that yeah, really yeah. hyper contrasty stylized look for the lighting. And there's times that characters' faces are completely in shadow when the rest of their body isn't. And yeah, it's yeah. kind of what, what it made me think of.
0: Awesome. Love that. Uh, so after they show up, right, um, I thought a really clever bit of adaptation is the ch- decision to split up um, Lila and have her investigating the house at the same time that Sam is with Norman. And the way that suspense builds because again, we think Lila's in danger to the mother. We see Sam with, um, with Norman, and we know that he's kind of in danger because we've seen what Norman can do um, a little bit, at least. Although I guess we, at this point, you're not really sure if he's the one who's actually killing people. But um, I, this was such a great moment in the book. I remember the scene where uh, Norman and, and, and Sam are talking was like a very creepy moment. And so you preserve that scene, but you're intercutting it with another scene now you're, you're bringing them together. And I just thought that was a smart way to do it because you realize that these two scenes can play off of each other in a, in a, in a way that really just heightens the tension.
1: Sam is is speaking with Norman, right? Like he's he's holding up Norman. I just thought you went down like a sack of potatoes in this. Like that's the yeah, scene we course, didn't get yeah. in the book we mentioned. Um, And he's like really being intimidating to Norman and then immediately gets like easily dispatched of. And Bonk. I was like, Man. he gets bonked on the head and he's down. Yeah. It's like, you were not as effective as I thought. And then overall the the growing tension that's building for for uh Lila in the house at that point, too, where we yeah. know that Norman's on his way. We even get the shots from inside the house where she's like going down into the basement trying to find a way to to you know have him not see her.
0: And then that we gotta talk about the moment uh in the cellar, right? Like she goes down in the fucking basement and she sees this person sitting in a chair facing away from her with her back, and she like slowly walks up to turn her around and then i thought this is a moment that like this looks pretty fucking scary to this day this mummified corpse that turns around in the chair like that had to be absolutely shocking to people um and then at the same time of course norman shows up in the and we get this mind-blowing twist that uh people didn't see coming i'm sure that they are one and the same. There is you no know, mother is dead, and that that you know, Norman is mother.
1: I, I just there's so much about this this scene that I love. So supposedly Hitchcock was going around with mummified versions. They were trying out different versions of getting the mother correct. And they would leave it around for Janet Lee to walk in and react to, trying to oh see if if they could find the scariest one based on her reaction, I guess. I don't know if that's like cruel, but it's definitely Wait, a funny was, prank, I guess. I don't know.
0: And these were props they were making, or were they finding mummified corpses out there? Okay, no, they're. I thought you were but... going to tell me there was some myth about this being a real body because it was pretty convincing.
1: Yeah, it was very convincing, and uh, I mean, props to them, haha, for uh, for making a good there. one there. <laughs> but one of the most striking things in the scene for me, Lila comes into the room, and there's this glowing orb of a light as she walks in.
0: It's like the single hanging light, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. She walks in, she sees this person, she rotates it on her way back. She flails back and smacks it. The rest of the scene, Yeah, the rest of the scene is shot with the, the light and the shadows being changed by that light swinging back and forth. And oh my god it looks so dynamic It Very looks cool. so cool and so creepy the way yeah. that like it's changing on on the mummy for a while it's changing on on lila's reaction face yeah and then on on the continuing on the walls and then when norman comes in and he's being subdued that lights just keep swinging and that helps again with the tension it's going you know it's almost like rhythmic with the with the score at that point yeah and uh and like what's the tension of the scene is at an all-time high. And it just looks so visually cool and so interesting when it, you could just have lit it normally. And uh, so that, that stands out to me as, as like highly iconic and something that like you could do today and it would still look amazing.
0: This delivers on the moment in the way that I felt like the book didn't quite. Like it, it set up this moment, but then it cuts away like just a hair too soon. And the movie instead takes a moment to let the climax hit. Here. and this is the climax of the story and let this moment really, I mean it doesn't like it doesn't take a lot of room to breathe, but it still just gets a just gets its time. it gets it gets its moment to shine. Um, and then, and then he's subdued and then, and then we cut away and then we go to the explanation, which is exactly what the book did. Um, I just felt like it stuck with it a little bit longer and I would have liked to see that in the book.
1: I agree. And like this, this feels like the, the climax of the entire movie, right? Like this is Mm -hmm. everything here. And then in the book and here we have another scene and Hitchcock, um, address this. He's like, people, people, he, it's what he called, uh, he was worried that the audience loses interest then. And then it's what he called a hat grabber scene where people are grabbing their hats, they're grabbing Mm. their coats and they're getting up and they're leaving the movie. And he's like, what, how do we make it more interesting? And for the time period, what I understand is he and the screenwriter approached it as scientifically as they could. And they wanted to really show like the psychology of what's going on and sell it with some, some interesting, cool twist that, that uh, brings it all together.
0: Well, and he had to be aware of what was going on with Ed Gein because this was happening around this time. and The details were starting to come out. And, and, you know, there was a fascination with killers like this and like how this could ever come to be. All of a sudden, it probably seemed more plausible to audiences than it ever had before. So, yeah, it's smart to take a moment to analyze the psychology. Not super believable that they would know all of this as quickly as they do once again we touched on on that in the book but um it's still like i don't care it's 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 cool to put to lay it out for the audience here and explain what you just saw
1: this the way that they go with it i think makes it more today while it's still quaint in the idea of like psychology and the idea of like what is actually being represented here um they did something that psychoanalyzed this film and went on to be what some people call this film the first Psychological analysis film like this is a psychoanalytical film.
0: Yeah. Um, And and we had talked about how, you know, the the study of serial killers and what's going on with them, psychologically was still in its infancy and it was still being developed. And like, of course, this day and age, we think about how important it is to understand. How they think so that you can predict future crimes and catch them and stuff like that at the time, that wasn't really a thing. And so the idea of like, let's talk a second about like the psychological state that led to this to happen um, and putting that in a movie is, is groundbreaking in and of itself. And I could see like young, you know, investigators who are who are out there like looking into these kind of killers thinking like, yeah, I should try and figure out what what is going on in their minds a little bit. Maybe
1: I'm sure that Jaws. Oh, I meant to mention that as well. Jaws, the, the theme for Jaws was influenced by the theme, the score the score for, for psycho here okay. that like, yeah, I can the, see u- it. the use of like, uh, strings to, to build tension and the way that it does that. Um, yeah. So that j- iconic jaws theme yeah. is also in some way influenced here. And that's funny because we made that reference last week, just in terms of like some of the
0: monsterification of the, of their, their, uh, you know, main antagonists. And then we get this last scene where, uh, it's Norman sitting in there, but we hear the voice of the mother. And then she talks about she w- she's not going to harm this fly. That way they think, you know, I wouldn't harm a fly. Um, and then we even get a moment where they overlay the skull Love onto it. his face uh, to, like, kind of finish out the film. Although I guess we do get one more moment of them pulling the car out. Yeah. But other than but, that, that's the, the, basically the last shot.
1: And that's one of those things that, like, was so like, especially for the time, as far as projection technology and everything, like who knows if people really saw it. Some people might think that they saw something and they're telling their friends about it. And then they're like, I gotta go back and see it again and see if there's actually a skull there at the end. Um, And yeah, obviously we can tell today for sure. Um, They absolutely superimpose that mummy over top of him uh, to to imply that the mother is there and in control. and yeah. she's going to be playing games going forward to to make it seem like it was all Norman and everything's
0: better now. Really cool, man. Um, at, we are running long, so we got to wrap this thing up. So let's vote on what was better, the book or the movie. I'll go first. This is an easy one. It's going to be the movie for me. Although I will say the book was better than expected. It has some st- stuff going for it. There were some cool moments of interiority. I do feel like I understand Norman Bates and his psychology better from the book than I do necessarily from watching the movie. But yeah, this is this is just an incredible film that is, uh, you know, historically significant and has changed cinema. So it's got to be the movie here, right?
1: Yeah, and, and still very enjoyable to watch. Like, I, I really enjoyed yeah. myself watching this movie. I can see myself watching it again very soon. It had been too long since I'd seen it. And I think in my mind, I'd been like, yeah, it's psycho. It's great. Yeah. But when you when you sit down and watch it, especially when you analyze it for the podcast like this, It's definitely the movie for me in this case, like there's just the filmmaking prowess, the legacy of it. I mean, you have you have like so many reasons why this is like a turning point in cinema as well, just like outside of the fact that it's an enjoyable film with great twists and great film like cinematography going on. Alfred Hitchcock is in theaters as a as a cardboard cutout telling people to be on time for movies like if that doesn't sell you on just the (laughs) legacy of this movie like that's awesome to 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 know that like he was so dedicated to it and you can see filmmakers still dedicated to their craft and wanting the audience to get the perfect experience um and i think he's you know he was championing it then and uh he would be championing it now today again i started it by saying like the influence of this film cannot be overstated um if you want to there's documentaries there's tons of books to read about this stuff we barely scratch the surface when it comes down to it and yeah. i wish i could break it down you know shot by shot it, because it is that significant and uh i i just i love this film we
0: will have to circle back to hitchcock i'm really curious now i don't think i've seen any of his other films like you listed them all and i'm like i've heard of a lot of them I've never seen them so i would love to return to him in the future and and see if we can find another adaptation he's done i'm sure there are others um and, and uh really dive into more of his stuff But uh, I wanted to say we are going to announce our Christmas project at the end of this episode. So stick around to the very end for that. If you enjoyed our coverage of Psycho and you enjoyed us, you know, just geeking out about film history and Alfred Hitchcock, please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on. And uh, it would be a nice little Christmas present for us, too. We'd love to see those. Uh, And leave us a comment and, uh, you know, like and subscribe on YouTube because that helps us with the algorithm. Let us know that you enjoyed it. We'd like to have these conversations uh, underneath our video are always fun to have. And
1: make sure to connect with us on all other social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Blue Sky. Find us wherever you're on social media.
0: Yeah, wherever you are, come find us because we're we're there, too. We're on basically everything these days. And if you'd like to support this podcast monetarily, well, first off, you're amazing. What a great person. Uh, we would <laughs> hugely appreciate it. We do have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash ink to film. That's how this project was chosen um, by our by our patrons. If you'd like to support us, patreon.com slash ink to film.
1: Yeah, long overdue uh, covering this project. We, we should have covered this long ago. So thank you to the patrons again. Um, and our next project, I'm just going to say now, is a Christmas project and we're gonna be doing Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. To tell you something crazy, there is a psycho reference in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. So I want you to keep your eye out for that next week.
0: All right, yeah. So we are gonna do this a little unusually in that we usually do a, a book and a movie episode separate. We're gonna combine the two here, it's a shorter novel. We've discussed Roald Doll before, so we figured we'd, we'd combine these two things in. it's gonna be a, a, probably another meaty episode, but I'm really looking forward to it. I think it'll be a fun way to cap off our coverage uh, as far as like adaptations go. And then we will have one more episode this year and that's the way we always finish out our years, which is, which is with our Last Looks episode, looking back at all the things we covered in 2023. And they're always super fun. I love those episodes. So I hope you all will join us for those.
1: Yeah, I can't wait. I love those episodes. And keep an eye out, because we are approaching episode 300. So we might yeah. have some plans for that.
0: Yeah, early next year, I think, is where we're going to land on that one. All right, that's it for this week. Until next time. Keep adapting.